Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslu.org. Good morning. Good morning. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And I've titled this Maintaining the Unity. And uh, for those of you that are uh, just joining us for the first time this morning, we've been working our way through Ephesians slowly. We've been taking the time to read Ephesians with a fresh perspective. And today, uh, we're making the transition. The first three chapters of Ephesians are uh, what many people call the doctrinal half. And then chapters four through six are the practical half of the book of Ephesians. So we are transitioning from uh, the foundation that we've been building for three months, basically, (laughs) uh, into um, what... Paul's going to take this foundation and do with it practically. And last week, we talked about Paul's vision for the growing of unity, for love in the church. And what we're going to see today is what's reflected in the beginning of chapter 4, what's been reflected really throughout the whole book of Ephesians, is a positive view of what the church can be, a positive view of what unity can look like. And... Uh, as many of us know, uh, living in community isn't always as beautiful as what's being portrayed here in the book of Ephesians. Um, Life isn't always uh, perfect. And so uh, we've been talking about how we can put aside our differences and grow in love, not just with others that we easily get along with, but those who have um, bigger perceived differences than us, those that are harder to get along with, So we're going to build on those thoughts these week, but uh, when I was thinking about uh, maintaining the unity, I want to also talk about what happens when you can't maintain the unity. Because there are situations, um, even we have this lofty goal presented for us in Ephesians, uh, that maintaining that unity is not possible. We're going to talk about that as well. So again, we're transitioning from the doctrinal side uh, to the practical And uh, we've been trying to read the doctrinal side with fresh eyes. And reading something with fresh eyes, that can be a little uncomfortable. And some of us at times may be a little uncomfortable accessing some of the ways we've been talking about the first half of Ephesians. Uh, But I want to warn you that if you get uncomfortable with the doctrinal half, when Paul starts telling us what to do and how to do it, we're probably going to even be more uncomfortable. (laughs) Because we don't like being told what to do always, do we? Um, And so Paul's going to be telling us uh, how we should be acting, um, how we've been transformed in the first half of Ephesians, how this gospel message of uh, the revelation of Jesus, how that changes us and transforms our life. That should have a natural, practical implication for our lives. And Paul's not going to shy away from telling us what we need to do in response to this gospel message. So before we go into our question for today, I want to mention our four themes. Uh, We've been talking about how the book of Ephesians um, is a community-oriented letter. It's not meant to be read individualistically. So every you in the letter we've been reading as y'all, the southern uh, plural. (laughs) The second thing we've been talking about is new creation and new order of things in Jesus, that revelation, that apocalypse, experiencing Jesus and how that changes us. And then the third um, and fourth themes we've been talking about, unity in Christ and how when we see division, it's because of the powers. It's because of uh, the way that the 
the devil and the systems that the devil has set up over time are working in our world. Um, and so we see, when we see division, we see the powers. And we're going to talk a lot about that today too, although not in the way that we have been. So our question for today is, how do we maintain the unity? How do we maintain the unity? So let's, let's begin by reading the section for the week, which is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the ESV, but just inserting the y'alls instead of the yous as we've been doing. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge y'all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as y'all were called to the one hope that belongs to y'all's call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So as I was looking at this passage this week, one thing jumps out to me, and, and I'll admit it jumps out in basically every single commentary that I looked at as well. The Apostle Paul believed that there were two basic things required to maintain the unity that God's given us. There were specific practical qualities that he believed were important, and we're going to look at those, humility, gentleness, patience, etc. And he also said there were seven doctrinal, specific doctrinal beliefs, the seven ones here in Ephesians chapter 4, that Paul felt was very important for them to understand and anchor themselves to as they endeavored to maintain the unity. Now the irony, 2,000 years later, is that the doctrinal list provided by Paul has, is no longer a place of unity, but has become controversial. And I, I want to consider just one example from this list briefly. And before we do that, I want to be absolutely clear that I'm not trying to make fun of anyone's beliefs. I'm not trying to minimize anyone's beliefs or any other group's beliefs. I'm merely pointing out that the division in the body of Christ on some of these issues that Paul has listed for us, there's division today, 2,000 years later, on this list. There's, these seven ones are no longer agreed upon within the larger Christian community. So I want to consider the subject of baptism. Who is eligible to be baptized? Well, some churches, like the Catholic, Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church, they baptize infants and babies. This is because these churches have a strong view on original sin. They believe that the baptism ritual cleanses the young child from the original sin of Adam and Eve. Other churches, following the Anabaptist tradition, practice what's called believer baptism, whereby only a person old enough to make a legitimate decision to follow Christ will be baptized. What about the actual ritual itself? Many churches, including the Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and similar faith traditions, will baptize by sprinkling or pouring, using a limited amount of water, while those in Baptist-style traditions and a lot of non-denominational churches are more likely to insist on total immersion in water. And then you have the background that a lot of us came from, a more Pentecostal or charismatic background, who emphasize that water's not even the important part. It's the spirit baptism that's the important part. So as you can see, just with one of these seven ones, the one baptism, there is no one baptism in Christianity anymore. This is not something that we can anchor ourselves to like they could 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. So why am I starting with the end of the passage? And why am I starting with how we read it instead of talking about how they would have understood it? That's the opposite of what we've been doing this whole time. 
the reason why I did it this way a, a little bit, just to, to sort of shock us a little bit this morning, is because I want to highlight how important the first three verses are here in this passage. Because it's my belief, and I'm submitting this to you uh, in humility, but it's my belief that we have to exhibit these first three verses more than they did 2,000 years ago. Because they had way more doctrinal unity than we do today. And so we have to put on these first three verses at an even higher level than they did 2,000 years ago. So let's go back to those first three verses and let's talk about them a little bit. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge y'all, you could translate this, call y'all aside to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which y'all have been called. Notice the three calls there. Call y'all aside, worthy of the calling to which y'all have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul here is urging the Ephesians to walk or to live in a manner worthy of this calling that they have on their lives. And verse 1, as I emphasize, has three different forms of the same Greek word, kaleo, which actually sounds like the word call, which helps us out a little bit. Um, so there's a heavy emphasis here on the calling and the mission that God's given us. And we have a responsibility to respond in a way that befits that calling, that fits with that calling. Tim Mackey in his class on Ephesians put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's not a direct quote. He says, Paul's core conviction is that our behavior is surface level stuff. What leads to behavior are deep, deep issues. He's going after our identity. Who are you? If who you are is changing, then it should follow that your behavior will change. So as we think about what Tim Mackey says here, remember that Paul is talking to a mostly Gentile church. These people, as he just eloquently explained a couple chapters ago, were recently part of a people group that was alienated from the covenants. They were without hope. They were without God. And Paul has just told them this amazing truth that God's plan is to unite everything together in Christ. And later in this exact chapter, which I'm not going to go into at all because our brother Jerry's going to do that, but he's going to tell them not to live like other Gentiles do. But they're Gentiles. It's like uh, Tim Mackey says, uh, it's like telling a group of Americans to not act like Americans anymore. Stop being Americans, right? They're Gentiles. And Paul tells them later in this very chapter, stop acting like a Gentile. Well, why? Because they're, they're part of the covenants of God now. They're in a different, God has translated them, he's, he's transformed them. So they're now part of the chosen people of God, and Paul expects them to act like that. So how does someone walk in a ma manner worthy of being part of the people of God? Paul lists five virtues here. They walk with all humility, that's virtue one, all gentleness, that's two, with patience, that's three. They bear with others, that's four. And they handle these difficult people that they're bearing up with in love. Love is the fifth virtue. And the practical aspect of that, the goal of that, is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit by bonding together in peace. So I want to take some time because I think this is where we have to sit and meditate in this passage this morning. On these, on these five virtues and how we have to exemplify them if we want to maintain the unity. So first I want to talk about humility. If you want to, you can take a little break with me from Ephesians and you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's just a couple pages over. Philippians chapter 2. 
This is one of my favorite passages when it comes to humility. Humility is the mental perspective of others coming before yourself. Others before yourself. If you talk about a, an un-American thing to do, <laughs> that's, this is what I'm talking about. Humility is not worldly. It's not, uh, certainly not American. Philippians chapter 2 gives us a great example of this in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, here's the humility verse, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then here's practically how you can do that. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, you have to look to your own interests some, right? But also to the interests of others. So this is what it means to be humble. What it means to be humble, to have humility, is to put others, um, put others before yourself. And uh, when we think about, when I think about this, when I think actually honestly about all of these five virtues, I think about moms. <laughs> Who puts other people's interests over themselves more than the moms? And dads sometimes, right? Dads, sometimes we can pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, I did, I did that for like 30 minutes today while mom did it all day today. <laughs> you can turn back to Ephesians chapter two, or uh, four, excuse me. The second virtue is gentleness. It says with all humility, and grammatically we could, we could translate it all humility and all gentleness. So there's an emphasis there. It's not just some humility, it's all humility, all gentleness. And gentleness here is uh, consideration towards others. Uh, the outline of biblical usage, which is a study tool that's available on Blue Letter Bible, said this about the root form of the word. Quote, gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trusting God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all, end quote. So again, I think about, I think about moms, but when I think about gentleness, uh, the image that came to my mind was actually of, of grandmas, grandmothers. I think about, I don't know how many of you had a close relationship with your grandmother, but um, I, when I think about grandmothers or grandmother figures in a church setting, I think of someone who's always ready to fill your stomach and always ready to hear about your life. You know, you sit down at a meal, she asks you about what's going on in your life. Do you ever hear about what's going on in grandma's life? Does grandma ever talk to you about herself? No, she wants to talk to you about you. What are you up to, sweetie? What is going on in your life? And when you leave, she's the one praying for you. She's the one interceding for you. And how many of the open doors, the positive open doors that open our lives come from people like that who are willing to intercede for us? So that's the image I have of gentleness. The third and fourth uh, virtues go hand in hand, patience and bearing with one another. Uh, according to Thayer, patience is uh, forbearance, long-suffering, slowness in avenging wrongs. Uh, bearing with one another means to, uh, according to the BDAG, one of the Greek lexicons, means to regard with tolerance, endure, bear up with, put up with. So what this means, what patience and bearing with one another means is that we take our time with each other. We don't respond with the first emotion that we feel. We can think of it as giving people the benefit of the doubt. And these two virtual, virtues are vital for any community of faith 
but especially I think a community of faith like Compass, um, there is, I think, the more typical patience or bearing with one another that happens practically because we all have different personalities. And sometimes, you know, a couple of us are tired and cranky and we do things that trigger other people in the church, right? And so that requires patience. Uh, that requires bearing with someone. Um, or you know, even longer standing things where personality types just don't click very well. We have a hard time communicating and understanding each other. That takes patience. It takes bearing up with other people. But there are also, there's also this layer that's unique to communities of faith like ours. Um, and there are others out there that, that try to exemplify this model of holding multiple perspective and valuing deep conversation about uh, these complex ideas about faith. When you live in, and when you worship in a community like that, um, we have to understand that we don't all have the same perspective on all these doctrinal issues. And so there's a patience and there's a, a bearing up with on even that as well. There's an additional layer of it as well. And so when I think about this, I think about me too, like as the pastor, like I don't have all the answers. I can't, I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions that are out there. Uh, and so I need you to be patient with me. I need you to bear up with me and uh, bear with me. And likewise, I have to be patient with you. And we have to remember that we're all on a faith journey together, um, but we're also individuals. We're on a faith journey by ourselves, and we're coming together, we're choosing to come together to worship. And so there is this, like I said, this general idea of patience and bearing with someone, and then there's this idea that comes from the fact that we're choosing to be in community even though we, we explicitly don't agree on everything doctrinally. So there's sort of two layers there. The final virtue listed in verse 2 is love. This is what Arthur Patzia said about love. He says, quote, Though it could be argued that love is not a separate quality from patience, but an amplification of what patience means, love could be taken as the crowning virtue that embraces all the rest. End quote. So I was thinking about love, and you know, there's that classic passage in 1 Corinthians 13 that describes love. I just wanted to list a couple of the qualities that 1 Corinthians 13 gives. Um, love is patient. It's kind. It does not get angry easily. It does not seek attention. It does not elevate itself over others. It does not insist on its own way. That sounds a lot like these other virtues that we've been talking about, doesn't it? So love is the selfless consideration of the needs of others. And so um, we need God's help. We need the Spirit's help to see love manifested in our lives. So those are the five virtues listed in verse 2. Let's reread verse 3 because this is the goal. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the attitude that these five virtues should lead us to is an eagerness to maintain the spiritual unity in the bond of peace. And I have a couple comments about this. Uh, we've been given spiritual unity by God. So our job is not to gain ground our job is to maintain ground that we've already been given. And I wanted to use a military analogy here. Uh, imagine that you have a castle or a fortress. So the unity that we have, it, we are not sieging this castle to gain unity. You know, we are not uh, breaking down the walls. We're not getting the grappling hooks out or the trebuchets, as fun as that might sound to some of us. Uh, we don't have to uh, bombard and take over this fortress. Um, what we are tasked with is being the people inside the fortress, inside the castle, and maintaining that castle from outsiders. 
but as you can imagine, when you're protecting a castle or fortress, or when reflecting on oh, what uh, uh, Jerry mentioned uh, a couple months ago about Hezekiah and the siege that happened in the days of Hezekiah, you know, there are dangers inside and there are dangers outside, right? There are sometimes approaching armies that come, like in the days of Hezekiah. And then there's the whispers inside the camp that also happened in the days of Hezekiah. So you have the invading forces from the outside, which are the powers at work, the very open powers at work, the, the demonic things that happen. But then the whispers that happen inside the camp, that's also the powers. The powers are doing both those, both those things, causing discontent, causing division, causing strife inside the camp inside the fortress. And so what keeps us unified is the bond of peace. So peace is here pictured as the binding that keeps us together when we decide to let it do its work. And so for me, uh, that's incredibly vital for us is to keep these five virtues in mind and to keep that goal of maintaining the unity in mind. Let's read these last uh, three verses again. There is one body and one spirit, just as y'all were called to the one hope that belongs to y'all's call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I just want to briefly comment on uh, these seven ones. There's one body of Christ. Like I mentioned before, back then, when they first heard this letter being read to them, there were very few doctrinal disagreements. The main issue is, what do we do with these Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised or not? Do they need to do this? Do they do that? That was the main doctrinal disagreement that they had in the early church. I wish that that was the only doctrinal disagreement that we had in the modern church. One spirit. The spirit of God that is given to the Christian that enables them to walk as Christ walked. And in Ephesians, the spirit is the down payment of a larger inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that leads us to the one hope. Hope in the kingdom of God. Hope in the kingdom of God is hope in this restored earth that, that God will send Jesus and that they will establish their kingdom on earth, that everything will, wrong with the world will be made right again. That is our one hope. But we all know brothers and sisters in Christ who believe um, in uh, going to heaven and living in heaven eternally. Um, or some people believe in going to heaven and then coming back to a restored earth. Um, and so we don't have one hope even in Christianity anymore. One Lord, Jesus the Messiah, but how do people define him, right? One faith. Now this could be either simple belief in Christ or it could be a catch-all for the summary of what Christians believe. If it's the first, if it's simple belief in Christ, then we can say that there is essentially one faith still left. But if we think it's a catch-all for the summary of what Christians believe, then no, there's not one faith anymore. One baptism. We've already unpacked this. Do you Dunk, do you sprinkle? Do you do babies? Do you not do babies? Is it spirit baptism? What are we talking about? One God, the Father of all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as he's defined in Ephesians 1, verse 3. But again, some people, even, even the commentaries will point to this and they'll say, look, there's one God, he's the Father, but then they'll try to define it in some way that fits their theology, uh, which is interesting. So, at the end of the day, like I said, these seven ones don't do much to help us unify in the Christian church in modern times. And so that's what leads us to what does it mean for our lives and the four layers of interpretation. So we've looked at what the text meant to them. 
how would they have applied it? Well, in the original context of Ephesians, the original audience would have understood the importance of the five virtues mentioned here in the passage, and they would have also recognized the seven ones as strong pillars of doctrinal agreement that they could rally around when smaller disagreements happened. And I know many of you, some of us in this room might be thinking, you know, well, what I think about baptism was probably what they thought about baptism, right? <laughs> but then there are other people across town that are thinking the same thing about what they think about baptism, right? So that's where we are today. Um, I, and that's why I don't, I don't want to too harshly define or too narrowly define any of these ones anymore because I could have an interpret. I do have a def definite interpretation for all seven of these things. But I can't be confident that that's exactly how the Ephesian believers looked at it 2,000 years ago or how Paul viewed it. So what does this text mean to us? As I've, we've been talking about, the seven ones are not really an area agreement or among all of Christianity. If you look at various commentaries or different statements of faith, you're going to find a variety of ways to understand each of these seven ones. So as I've been saying throughout this sermon, these seven pillars that formerly made for doctrinal unity no longer unify the modern Christian church. So where does that leave us? If we don't have the seven ones to lean on, then what do we have to lean on? We have the five virtues in the power of God. That's right, Jerry. We have God. We, have, we need these five virtues that only God can supply more than they did 2,000 years ago. We live in a time when Christians have split over, they've split denominations over these items in this very list, much less things less important than these seven items. And I think that there is obviously a level of doctrinal unity, a doctrinal agreement that makes unity easier. But I also think that we're incapable of understanding God's truth perfectly as individuals. I know I will speak for myself when I say I am incapable of perceiving God's truth perfectly right now. I am incapable of that. And I humbly submit to you that you are in the same boat as me. <laughs> but even together, even all of us united in this church, we're not going to get all the way there in our lifetimes. That's just not going to happen. So how can we do our best to maintain the unity that God's given us? How do we hold on to this fortress that's got, that God has given us? Well, it's through the five virtues. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, and love. All of us have to exemplify these things. Um, I've been listening recently. I, I listened to it a while back, but they released some bonus episodes of the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of all that went wrong with Mars Hill, but I will submit to you that the leadership in that church, and part of the reason why it fell is because the leadership of that church notably the head pastor of that church, but also the pastors around him, did not exemplify any of these five virtues. It was a total breakdown on all of these virtues. And that is why it led to a catastrophic death of that church. And so the important thing for me is not that I'm the pastor and I'm enforcing this on all of you, but that I'm somehow not under this. If I fail to exemplify these things, then y'all need to get, you know, talk to me about that. I need to be able to exemplify these things. And later in Ephesians, we're going to get to 
mutual submission. We're going to get to gifts in the church, the leadership gifts in the church. And, and Paul doesn't say when he goes to talk about submitting one another to one another in the church in Ephesians chapter 5, he doesn't say, oh, you remember those five ministries that are gifts to the church? Yeah, those are exempt from submitting to one another. They don't have to submit to you. That's not what he says. It's not what he says. So I need to exemplify these things just as much as y'all need to exemplify these things. So I want to close with some sobering thoughts on unity, if, if what I've said already hasn't been sobering enough. <laughs> oh, man. Because of one of the major themes of Ephesians, if not the biggest theme, and I think it is probably the overarching theme of the letter to the Ephesians, is unity. It's the main thread that comes through on every page of this letter. We've been talking about it a lot. And again, we have to remember that Ephesians is talking about, it's describing the church at its best, on its best day. The church when everything is going well. So I want to ask the question, are there cases when we cannot have unity with other people? When it's impossible to maintain this unity that God's given us, even if they're Christians. Even if I grant that they are born again, that they have the Spirit of God, that they are in relationship with Christ. The answer is yes. There are times when we cannot maintain the unity. When we think about Jesus, we think about how he prayed for his persecutors. Uh, the most notable moment of that is when he prayed for them on the cross. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what we're doing. And I mentioned that last week. But during his earthly ministry, did he eat with those people regularly? Did he fellowship with those people regularly? Did he worship with them in the temple regularly? No. What about Paul? In Galatians 1, Paul said those that are sowing division by preaching a different gospel were to be considered accursed. In Romans 16, he tells the church to watch out for the people who cause division and for the people in the church to avoid those ones who are causing division. So if people do not, if they're not actively serving Christ, but they're claiming to serve Christ, if they're claiming to have these five virtues, but they're not exemplifying these five virtues, then eventually it gets to the point where there can be no unity maintained. And at some point, it gets so bad where they're to be avoided. So I want to give some very strong caveats on unity this morning that should be sobering for us. If people are abusing us actively or if they have abused us, if people are acting without the five virtues and they've been consistently outside of those five virtues we talked about today, if people insult us, if they demean us, should we hold resentment? No. There is a time for us to heal and we should forgive them. But we don't need to keep putting ourselves in relationship or in fellowship with them. We should pray for them and eventually it gets to the point that we should avoid them. And we can do both of those things. We can pray for them and we can avoid them. God doesn't want the wife who is being abused to stay with her abusive husband. God doesn't want the child being abused by their, his parents or her parents to obey those parents when it would lead them to harm. Children are to obey their parents, as Paul says in this very letter, when they're in the Lord. You have to be in the Lord. God doesn't want the congregation being abused to stay under the authority of an abusive pastor. The pastor has to be in the Lord. The only unity that we have today is the spiritual unity that God has given us in Christ. The way for us to experience that is for us to be in the Lord or in Christ. 
to be living like Jesus did. And as a community, when we come together in the Lord, that makes for unity. When we exemplify these five virtues, it makes for unity. Even when our differences, we have differences with our religious background, our doctrinal beliefs, our ethnicity, our personality type, the things that usually divide us, that the powers use to divide us, if we all exemplify these five virtues, and if we come together in the Lord, then we can still have unity. We can keep the unity. But if someone is not exemplifying these five virtues, if they're not putting, actively putting on Christ, if they're not in the Lord, if they're not in Christ, if they're not doing these things, then there is a limit to the type of unity that we can experience with them. And that's not on you if you're the one exemplifying these five virtues. It's on them. They're the ones failing to maintain the unity. You're not the one who's failing. It's not on you. It's on them. So when I think about experiencing unity, when I've been talking about experiencing unity in the context of people different than us, in context where it's difficult sometimes for us to maintain unity, I'm not talking about people who are, who are, who are failing in these virtues. I, I, and if I ever put on that impression, I, I want to apologize for that. What I'm talking about is I'm talking about the systems that the powers have set up in the world around us, the systems like racism and sexism and all the other isms of our day, the way that we can look past our differences if we all put on these virtues and, and can still maintain the unity in that context. We're talking about learning from others who are intentional like we are in meekness and love. We're talking about learning from others how the powers have hurt them and have, have, have manifested in their lives in troublesome ways and how we can help alleviate their issues together by working together in meekness and in love. I've never been and don't want to ever be considered to be talking about practical unity with those who abuse us or those who cause division because of their lack of these virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and love. And so this is, I think, a challenging passage for us 2,000 years later because um, there's so much division just in the church before we even talk about outside the church and the systems that have been set up. And so uh, as we reflect on this this week, I think we have a big challenge um, here in our church and then dealing with people outside of our church. But we want to be the kind of people who exemplify and put on these five virtues that we've been talking about this morning and who actively go out in the community to serve others in love, to show people these virtues in living color so that the powers can be broken down in their lives so that they can start to experience this gospel message that Paul is preaching here in Ephesians. For us to do that, we have to be able to put on these five virtues as we minister to people uh, both inside our church and outside our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you've given us, the spiritual unity that we have. We're thankful for uh, your son and how he showed us the way to live this and exemplify all these virtues. And Father, we're thankful for these things in our lives, how you've exhibited these things to us as individuals and how you grant us your grace and mercy as a group, as a community of faith as well. Father, we're not going to get everything right individually 
we're not going to get everything right as a community of faith. But you see our hearts, God. You, knew, you see that we are doing our best with your spirit working in us. And we just ask that you continue to work in us. Help us to uh, continue to put on these, these things. To put on meekness and gentleness. To put on patience and bearing with others. And to, most importantly and above all else, as it says in Colossians, to put on love. Father, we ask for your, your love today. Help us to uh, be the people that can show the bond of peace to others in the community. Help us to be ministers that may help maintain unity, not just in this congregation, but also to other groups, other groups around us in the community. So, Father, we thank you for this great calling that you've given us, and we, we pray that you would help us as we endeavor to walk worthy of that calling. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslu.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.